We gather this hour as people of faith, with joys and sorrows, gifts and needs. We light this beacon of hope, sign of our quest for truth and meaning, in celebration of the life we share together. And now can we sing together from the Green Book, our first hymn, and I don't even know the number. What is it, Jean? 46. 46. And I haven't got a book. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Well, maybe there's 
something in there that's useful. Maybe it's got some paraffin in it, or maybe some oil. <coughs> maybe some perfume. So he took the bottle, took it out of the top. But before he could put his nose to the, to the bottle to see what was in it, there was a blinding flash. There was a genie, four meters tall, looking down. And the genie said, prepare to die. The man said, why? What's the matter? What have I done? He said, I have been in that bottle for a thousand years. Tesco's been around a long time. <laughs> I was put there by a wicked magician who put a spell on me. And even though I have untold magical powers, I was not able to get out of the bottle. That was the one thing I couldn't do. <laughs> and 200 years ago, after 800 years of frustration and mounting anger, I decided that the first human being I saw, I would trample to death. And you are that human being, and I'm going to trample you to death. And the poor fisherman said, excuse me, just a minute, I've actually let you out of here. You know, surely you should reward me, not punish me. And anyway, he said, I don't even believe you came from this bottle. You're four meters tall, the bottle's only small. You were never in here in the first place. He was thinking very quickly. <laughs> so the, the genie, for all his untold magical powers, was a little bit stupid. So, <laughs> So the genie says, let me out, let me out, let me out. No way, said the fisherman, you're in there and there, you're going to stay, my friend. And so the genie said, if you let me go, I will make you fabulously wealthy, because I'm a very powerful genie. You will have a big house with lots of shirts, a coach and four, you wear the best clothes, you never have to work again in all your life. Just let me go. So now, I ask the question, what did, what did the fisherman do? What would you do? Lauren, I can see you're shaking your head. <laughs> what would you do, Lauren? Would you let him go? Would you risk it? Anybody like to comment? Adults or child? I'd let him do it. You'd let him go? Yes. Yeah, I've claustrophobia, so I can sympathize. <laughs> <laughs> Simply out of charity, would you? Yeah. Very honourable. Probably these days, put it on eBay, be worth the bother too. This is not a modern story. <laughs> Although Tesco's was around, so. <laughs> who would let him go? Let's have a show of hands. Who would let? Who would take the risk and let him go? Well, 
fifty. Huh? Well, the story comes from the Arabian Nights, you know, the collection of stories that's very ancient. And in the actual story, the man does let the genie, and he is rewarded with untold wealth and honors. So it does work in his case. But I tell the story simply to ask you to consider your own sense of adventure and risk and whether safety matters more than adventure. I can't answer the question for you. And of course, there may be different times in your life when you would answer it in a different way. But it's, a, it's an interesting one to ponder and to see just how much we are prepared to risk. Okay. Let us pray. O oh God, we thank Thee for this universe, our great home, for the vastness of its riches, and for the manifoldness of the life which teems upon it, and of which we are a part. We praise Thee for the arching sky and the blessed winds, for the driving clouds and the constellations on high. We praise Thee for the salt sea and the running water, for the everlasting hills, for the trees and for the grass under our feet. We thank Thee for our senses by which we can see the splendor of the morning, and hear the jubilant songs of love, and smell the breath of the springtime. Grant us, we pray thee, a heart wide open to all this joy and beauty, and save our souls from being so steeped in care, or so darkened by passion, that we pass heedless and unseen, when even the thorn bush by the wayside is aflame with the glory of God. <coughs> Amen. And now I'd like us to sing again. At this time, it is number 57. Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see. Number 57.
Rabbi Lionel Blue tells the story of an unfortunate man who falls off the edge of a cliff and finds himself hanging for dear life to a bush. Looking up, he sees yards of sheer cliff face without a single foothold. Looking down, he sees the jagged rocks onto which he must fall to certain death. Desperately, he cries out, Is anybody there? Please help me! No sooner are the words out of his mouth than he hears a great voice booming from the sky. Yes, my son, I am here. Have faith. Let go of the bush and I will hold you safely in the palm of my hand. There follow a few moments of silence and then the man shouts, Is anybody else there? (laughs) We can all sympathize with his predicament. We're all in desperate need of help, but we would prefer that it came from a more conventional terrestrial source. We know how much, how more money would help us, or a better job, or better physical beauty, or better health, or in the case of the man in the story, a rope or a helicopter. But if I put my trust in the voice of God, there's no knowing what it might involve. I may have to change my habits and my activities in ways that I'm not yet ready to do. I may become something that I'm not yet ready to be. I need help, but on my own terms and within the familiar conventions. Spiritual teachers call this the Jonah complex. The Jonah complex. After the Hebrew prophets who disobeyed God's will to go on a difficult mission to Nineveh and went instead to Tarshish, where, presumably, he could rub along pretty much as he's always done. Scholars are not certain to which country Tarshish refers, but they tend to identify it with Spain, which is remarkably ironic in view of the fact that so many contemporary Europeans retreat there in the fervent hope that sun, sea, sex and sangria will relieve them for a time from the tedium of their mundane existence. (laughs) Of course, what we need to do, what we're here to learn to do, or to think about doing, is to live spiritually. That is perhaps the answer to our question. This is perhaps what God is calling us to do, what God is asking us to risk to live spiritually. What does that mean? You know, spirituality is a very tricky subject. Nobody can quite define it. And all of us would perhaps define it if we could, if we were prepared to try in different ways. And it would probably be airy-fairy. Or as Jeff said yesterday in our group, fluffy. It would be a bit fluffy. Well, I want to define it now 
very simply, spirituality is the process of increasing our sensitivity to life. That's all it is. The process of increasing our sensitivity to life. We needn't involve airy-fairy concepts at all. We needn't, if we don't want, involve God. We are increasing our sensitivity to life. And how do we do it? Well, now, of course, this is a tricky one. And we all think it's very difficult. When really, at least the first steps are quite easy. And it's because they're easy that we don't really do it. Again, going back to the Bible, there's a lovely story in the second book of Kings, chapter 5, concerning the prophet Elisha. And Naaman, who comes from Damascus, has got leprosy. And the king of Damascus has heard that there's a great prophet in Israel, and this great prophet would cure his leprosy. So he sends Naaman to him. And Naaman goes with his servant. And his servant approaches Elisha the prophet and says, My master Naaman has leprosy and he asks you to cure him. So Elisha says, Okay, tell him to bathe seven times in the river Jordan. So the servant goes back and says to Naaman, Elisha the prophet says, You are to bathe seven times in the river Jordan. He said, What? Have I come all this way to be told that? Are there no rivers in Damascus that I have to come here and bathe seven times in the river Jordan? And Naaman says to him something very significant, which we could all do to hear. He says, if he told you to do something difficult, you'd have done it. But because it's easy, you can't be bothered. Now that, you see, the Bible contains nuggets, gems, which are relevant to us today. And that, I think, is one of them. If somebody said spirituality, oh, is a terribly arduous process, taking decades before you would attain anything like results that are tangible, then perhaps we would embark upon the process and congratulate ourselves on our efforts. But if somebody says to you, actually it's quite simple, you can start to do it today and it's not going to take too much effort or time, then perhaps we can't be bothered. What I want to do now is to give you a few very simple things that you can do to, to meet life spiritually. And we can do them throughout our life, the children as well as the adults, and start at any time. And perhaps some of them you're doing already, and I hope you are. I spoke on these things in Dublin around about 1999, and when the congregation was mixed, when it had people who had come from the Catholic tradition, lifelong Unitarians, and people who were coming out of Protestantism. And when I when I outlined these uh, ideas, I mean, there was a mixed reaction. To the Catholics, they were commonplace. The Catholics had been doing this all their life. The Protestants and the lifelong Unitarians had never even heard of them. To them, they were almost revelatory. And yet, they are very simple 
This I feel, and this is a, a tangent really that I'm going off on here, and it's one of these things that I'm becoming increasingly concerned about. Unitarians do not teach spirituality. We argue. We want our sermons to be arguments. We want our sermons to tackle important issues so that we can nod our heads sagely and go, yes, yes, I think um, you know, the existence of God, the arguments for the existence of God, you know, all those kind of things. They're, they're, they're completely unchallenging. They don't change our lives in any way whatsoever. They're in one ear, out of the other. Our sermons, generally speaking, don't tackle the issues of living life spiritually, as far as I can understand. And I feel that until we do, we're never going to grow. We can't ask people to come into our communities looking for a spiritual home and then say, find your own spiritual path. We can't keep on saying that to people. Oh, welcome. Yes, it's so nice you've come here as a Unitarian. Yes, you, you want to investigate what we offer. Well, what we say to you is, find your own way. People think, I thought you'd come in here and, you know, this was my destination. Oh, no. Do you want to be a Unitarian Christian? Do you want to be a Unitarian pagan? Do you want to be a Unitarian humanist? Do you want to just be a Unitarian contrarian, like the most of them? <laughs> what do you want to be? Uh, of course, we don't expect you to do anything that you might find uncomfortable. No, you are here. We are never going to make you feel uncomfortable at all. If you don't want to stand up, don't stand up. If you don't want to say the Lord's Prayer, don't say the Lord's <laughs> All the religions that are growing say to people, this is what we expect. We expect you to fast for a month during the hours of daylight during Ramadan. If you're a Mormon, we expect you to give 10% of your income gross to the church. To stop drinking tea, coffee, alcohol, to stop smoking. Which religion is growing? Which religion has 14 million adherents and the daftest theology you've ever, ever heard about? <laughs> Sorry? The golden tablets. The golden tablets, and yes, all the rest of it, and people. But people don't believe that. But Mormonism offers them something. As Catholicism offers them something. It offers them a spiritual, it offers them spiritual guidance. And the spiritual guidance you get from most of the traditional religions is by and large the same. And we are not offering it. We are telling people to do it themselves. And that suits some, but it doesn't really suit the majority. Now that, as I said, is a tangent. So I want to give you just a few hints on what I think are the simple things that we can all do to increase our sensitivity to life. Nothing airy-fairy here. <coughs> And the first of these does not involve doing anything at all. It simply requires us to change our attitude to what we're already doing. And it's particularly applicable to those things we would rather not do, but which duty or circumstances demand of us. 
Perhaps the work we do is uncongenial to us, or at least has elements that we perform reluctantly or perfunctorily. Perhaps the routine household chores which never end and which constantly need redoing seem wearisome to us, mindless, pointless intrusions into the much more elevating and rewarding activities that we envisage ourselves doing in their stead. What we should say to ourselves at such times is this. This task, whatever it may be, is necessary to my spiritual welfare and I dedicate it to my enlightenment and to the enlightenment of all beings. You can do that with the washing up. You can do it with doing the washing, with doing the cooking. Because sweeping the yard, washing the car, changing the nappy, writing the sermon, become a prayer and we can begin to make sense of St. Paul's advice, so frequently misunderstood, that we should pray without ceasing. Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see, and what I do in anything, to do it as for thee. So says George Herbert in the beautiful hymn that we've just sung. This, he says, is the famous stone, the philosopher's stone, sought by alchemists which turns lead into gold, drudgery into divinity. And it is one that we can all discover, regardless of whether we believe in a God who notices and rewards these things. The second way, like the first, is about attitude rather than action. We should never sit down to a meal. Never, ever sit down to a meal without offering a simple prayer of thanksgiving. It need not be public or even audible, although it may be if it can be done without ostentation or embarrassment. And if it's troublesome to you, it needn't be addressed to God. What is required is an acknowledgement that what we are eating and drinking, the very stuff of life, comes to us from outside of us. That we are dependent upon the bounty of the earth and the labor of others for all that sustains us. This simple redirection of our awareness from the self to others is a powerful antidote to our self-centeredness, a recognition of our contingency and lack of self-sufficiency, and an aid to developing that sense of gratitude that informs all genuine spiritual living. Meister Eckhart, the 13th century German mystic, said something very significant. He said, if the only prayer you ever say in your whole life is thank you, it is enough. That, I think, is so profound. If the only prayer you ever say in your whole life is thank you, it is enough. Thirdly, 
take some time out from your busy schedule to do nothing that could be construed as profitable or productive or entertaining in the conventional sense of these terms. Switch off the television or the radio, unplug the telephone, and give yourself a quarter of an hour or so of tranquility. What is this life if full of care we have no time to stand and stare, asks the poet. Stand and stare. Go for a walk, not to improve your digestion or your appetite, not to enhance your physical fitness, but just to give yourself time to slow down, to reflect, to become aware of the sights and sounds that surround you and which your dulled senses have ignored. Meditate if you find this helpful, and if you have proper guidance. Read a few passages from some spiritual work that appeals to you, whatever it might be, and we all have different favourites. I like to read the Psalms or one of the great poets. I am particularly attracted to Wordsworth, Walt Whitman, Emily Dickinson, Blake, Shelley, Gerard Manley Hopkins. These are my favourite poets, and Reading a few lines from these can often uh, be very helpful to me. Pray for your family. In this time that you take to yourself, pray for your family and friends and for all those who may be in need of your love and concern. There are more things wrought by prayer than this world dreams of, wrote Tennyson. And he's right. And don't make the excuse that you haven't the time to do these things. Rescue some time from the time you waste on the vain, the frivolous, and the banal activities which constitute so much of the waking life of all of us. It's a sad comment on our sense of values that we are prepared to spend the minutes required each day to ensure that we have longer eyelashes or younger-looking skin or thinner waistlines, but we cannot find time for that tranquility which is undoubtedly of more benefit to us spiritually, psychologically, and even physically than any application of unguents whose sole purpose seems to be to fight a frustrating and ultimately a losing battle against the inexorable march of time. I'd like... Margaret now to read a passage from Anne Morrow Lindbergh from a book which I do recommend to you if you have not seen this book if you've not read it please get a copy they're available all over the place you certainly get them from Amazon there's lots of editions of them it's called The Gift from the Sea by Anne Morrow Lindbergh I used to present it to couples getting married um, in the church in Dublin until it became too expensive. When we had about 100 weddings, I felt that maybe I didn't want to be affording this uh, each time. But it's such a beautiful book, and, and married couples ought to read it together to learn about intimacy. But here's a passage about quiet that I think uh, is instructive. Margaret. Every person, especially every woman, 
should be alone sometime during the year, some part of each week and each day. How revolutionary that sounds and how impossible of attainment. To many women, such a program seems quite out of reach. They have no extra income to spend on a vacation for themselves, no time left over from the weekly drudgery of housework for a day off, no energy after the daily cooking, cleaning, and washing for even an hour of creative solitude. Is this then only an economic problem? I do not think so. Every paid worker, no matter where in the economic scale, expects a day off a week and a vacation a year. By and large, mothers and housewives are the only workers who do not have regular time off. They are the great vacationless class. They rarely ever complain of their lack, apparently not considering occasional time to themselves as a justifiable need. Herein lies one key to the problem. If women were convinced that a day off or an hour of solitude was a reasonable ambition, they would find a way of attaining it. As it is, they feel so unjustified in their demand that they rarely make the attempt. One only has to look at those women who actually have the economic means or the time and energy for solitude yet do not use it to realize that the problem is not solely economic. It is more a question of inner convictions than outer pressures. Though, of course, the outer pressures are there and make it more difficult. <coughs> as far as the search for solitude is concerned, as all-pervasive and as enervating as high humidity on an August afternoon in either man or woman, the need to be alone. How inexplicable this is. Anything else will be accepted as a better excuse. If one sets aside time for a business appointment, a trip to the hairdresser, a social engagement, or a shopping expedition, that time is accepted as inviolable. But if one says, I cannot come because that is my hour to be alone, one is considered rude, egotistical, or strange. What a commentary on our civilization and being alone is considered suspect. When one has to apologize for it, make excuses, hide the fact that one practices it like a secret vice. <laughs> Actually, these are among the most important times in one's life when one is alone. Certain springs are tapped only when we are alone. The artist knows he must be alone to create, the writer to work out his thoughts, the musician to compose, the saint to pray. But women need solitude in order to find again the true essence of themselves, that firm strand which will be the indispensable center of a whole web of human relationships. She must find the inner, that inner stillness, which Charles Morgan describes as the stilling of the soul within the activities of the mind and body, so that it might be still as the axis 
of a revolving Thank you, Margaret. I think she makes a case there for aloneness as well as any that I've ever seen. And isn't it interesting that she says that if you were to say, oh no, I can't come to meet you, I'm going to the hairdressers, or I, I'm, I do this or do that, then people will accept it. But if you say, oh no, I can't come because that's when I have my alone time, they would think you were absolutely barnum. And maybe this is something we need to change. I think it is, we can rescue 15 minutes a day for our alone time. And we must, we should. There's this thing called, in the Catholic tradition, Lectio Divina, divine reading, where you take something that you find inspiring, like perhaps, say, the poetry of T.S. Eliot, and you read a few lines, and you read them, and then reread them, and let them wash over you and into you, and see what words or what phrases strike you as important, and meditate on those. Let your mind wander onto those, and see what message they contain for you. It's a very powerful thing to do, and you only need to do it for a few minutes. Lectio Divina. It's a really powerful spiritual practice. Something else that you can do, again, which I think is so significant, is to take something, anything, and look at it closely. Really, really look at it and think about it. I was sitting downstairs, this is a year or so ago, um, and a, a moth had come in, and it was flying around madly around the lights, as they do, and I thought, oh, I'll get you, buddy. And I rolled up a newspaper and I was going to smash it. And then I thought, I know what an incredible entity this is. You know how wonderful, how beautiful, how intricate this being is. And am I going to just squash it against the wall? And it was a really important realization to me. And I, in fact, what I did was turn off the light and leave, leave it to itself. Because strangely, they disappear the next day. I've noticed that. I don't know where they go to. But they're not. You think, oh, there's a great big moth in the kitchen last night. Then in the morning, it's not there. And the window's not. I don't know what happens with these like socks in the washroom. <laughs> I know none of you are really old enough for this, but the oldie magazine. <laughs> this is uh, from July. There's a series of columns in here called Profitable Wonders by James Lafano. And in this one, I won't read it to you, but this one is about the butterfly. You know, the humble butterfly. He talks about it here and all the miraculous things about it, the way that it comes out of the uh, chrysalis and, you know, how it develops from a little slug-type thing into this beautiful butterfly. And all the... Well, magical things that happen to a butterfly to make it into a butterfly. But you could do it with anything, absolutely anything. Just spend some time looking, looking closely, thinking. Again, quoting Meister Eckhart, he said, if I looked at the humblest thing, the humblest insect, if I really looked at it, I would never need to write another sermon. 
See, you think as a Unitarian, 52 weeks a year, you listen to some droning voice. <laughs> Over 10 years, that's 520. You know, and you think, what have I learned in all this time? What have I learned? Am I a better person? The chances are you'd have to say that. No, I don't think I am. But if we really, really look at things, I think that can have the effect of transforming. Here's something else that we can do. Every day, every day of your life, try to do something for which you can never be rewarded. For which you can never be rewarded. Even if it's only picking up some litter and putting it in a basket. Don't do anything for people to see you doing it. As soon as it's been spotted, as soon as you do it ostentatiously or publicly, the spiritual value of it is lost. Something for which you can never be rewarded. I found, in Ireland, you know, they had, they had the Angelus. The Angelus is again a Catholic practice which, um, which the Irish adopted. The only time we were really aware of it was at six o'clock. It used to be every six hours you'd have a bell ring and people would stop whatever they would do and they would say a prayer. The only one that really survived in my time in Ireland was the six o'clock one. So when the news News, it wasn't news at 6 in Ireland, it was news at 6-1. Because the first minute was the Angelus minute. And the bell, the, the, the clock would chime, and people were expected to collect themselves. Quiet, still. How significant that was, because then you had the onslaught of the news. And it was Syria, and it was America, and it was bombs, and it was oil, and it was depression and all the rest of it. But you had a minute of tranquility, of recollection. Now, of course, there were strong voices in Ireland. Get rid of this stupid Catholic sectarian practice. The Angelus belongs to an age before our own. And I thought, how sad is they get rid of it? They will get rid of it. Because Ireland is becoming increasingly secular. But I felt that what we have to do, what all of us have to do, is create our own angelus. Our own, and I call these angel moments. Moments of reflection. And I devised a, a number of these. One is, whenever I hear a police siren, or an ambulance siren, to let that be to me a wake-up call. To think, somebody's in distress, to offer a silent prayer for whomever that involves. That was an angelus moment to me. Um, and other things, you may, you know, whatever you want to devise yourself. But my own psyche has a way of alerting me to this. Because in my life, at more times than I care to remember, I look at my watch, and it's 10 to 10. In fact, it's 10 to 10 now. And 10 to 10, because the number 10 has had a significance for me, I can't understand this or explain it. But um, 
So often I look at my watch and it's 10 to 10 and, and I think, if you like, the angels are playing with my mind. It's my own psyche, I know. But, I, but at that point, I simply offer a silent prayer of thanksgiving for the orderliness of the universe of which I am a part. And I smile at the inexplicable nature of what has just happened. Because I don't look at my watch and acknowledge that it's 9 o'clock or half past 9 or 20 past 9. But 10 to 10 is frequent and has become, for Mora and me, uh, you know, quite a joke. So find your own angel moments. Moments for pause. I love the way in Ireland, when a funeral went past, and the Irish people would make the sign of the cross. Because we hate that kind of stuff as Unitarians. But it's a wonderful thing to do. You stop and you make this physical prayer. It's a physical prayer. And you identify with that person who is dead. Now, too frequently, the funeral cortege goes by in Pontefract where I live and nobody pays any attention to it. Pause, moments of pause which you construct for yourself, angelus moments, like constructing for yourself a Sabbath. That's something else that we can all do, even though we don't necessarily honor Sunday or Saturday. Anyway, I don't want to go past 11, uh, 10 o'clock. Can I just say one final thing, which I think, again, is uh, highly significant and must never be neglected. Never go to sleep at night without reviewing the day's activities. Never, ever go to sleep at night without reviewing the day's activities. Of course, this should be entirely separate from any review of your business or professional concerns. It should focus on how you have interacted with other people and how far you've allowed your own ego and what you perceive as your own needs to dominate your personal relations. This is a scary activity, because if you're honest enough and thorough enough in your assessment, there will never be a day on which you fail to find something to be ashamed of. A tiny lie told, a missed opportunity to help, a shirked responsibility, a monopolized conversation, a delight in gossip, an angry outburst, feelings of resentment or envy. These constitute the stuff of our daily activities and we should be aware of them even though it's very unlikely we will ever eliminate them. So the daily review at the end of the day is highly significant. G.K. Chesterton, another Catholic writer, had a beautiful little poem which I try to say before I go to sleep at night and it's very simply this. Here dies another day on which I have had eyes, ears, hands and the great world about me. And with tomorrow begins another. Why am I allowed to? Here dies another day on which I have had eyes, ears, hands and the great world about me. And with tomorrow begins another. Why am I allowed to? That's a beautiful poem. Significant. 
thought lying within it. The purpose of these elementary spiritual exercises is not to make us scrupulous or fearful or overly pious. Such states are themselves quite undesirable, nor are they designed to ingratiate us with God. In fact, they can be and should be practiced by atheists as well as by those who believe in a deity. The aim of these practices and others like them is to liberate us from slavery to the ego, to take us out of the tormenting prison of the self, to reconnect us with the wider world, to reacquaint us with the fact that we are dependent beings and to remind us that we are every bit as capable of being creators of strife and turmoil as those whom we routinely blame for these things. They will help us to experience that very freedom which we think we have, but which not one person in a thousand actually possesses, because for the most part our lives are lived in reaction to circumstances and in slavery to convention temperament and appetites rather than in positive choice and decision. They enable us gradually to loosen our grip on that bush that we are so fearfully and so desperately clutching so that we can begin to trust ourselves to the universe, to God and to each other. And who knows what a radical transformation that might bring. To end, here's a poem inspired by Guillaume Apollinaire, which contrasts sharply with the story from Lionel Blue, with which we began. Go to the edge, the voice said. No, they said, we will fall. Go to the edge, the voice said. No, they said, we will be pushed over. Go to the edge, the voice said. So they went, and they were pushed, and they flew. Are we going to sing again, Sheila? Um, oh yes, it's Thomas Hinks, isn't it? Scorn not the slightest word of you. And I think that should just about take us to ten o'clock. No, it's number 55. This was written by Thomas Hinks, who used to be minister in court. And um, he then came to Mill Hill Chapel in Leeds and lost his voice, completely lost his voice, was unable to preach or speak for the rest of his life. And um, I, because he was ministering Cork, I have a, 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 an affection for him. But I, I love this hymn. And I think, again, it expresses something of what I've been saying this morning. It's not about the big things. It's not about, oh, yes, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I'm religious, but I'm not spiritual. I'm too, oh, yes. Hello, birds. Hello, trees. Yes, I'm floating. I'm floating off into the stratosphere. Oh, yes, I'm terribly spiritual. Oh, don't, don't ask so-and-so to do anything. She's so spiritual. She's not on this earth, you know. No, spirituality is about this earth and what we're doing here now practically. 
with ordinary things in ordinary interaction and so the, the, scorn not the slightest word or do. They are important. Number 55. Thank you,